electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Airbnb co-founder Brian Chesky on a landmark IPO. We created a new category of travel, and so therefore we're in a category of one. The home rental company's dramatic 2020 turnaround. March happens, and I feel like I'm, you know, the captain of a ship, and all of a sudden a torpedo hit the side of the ship, and then suddenly our business drops by 80% in eight weeks. It's not typical to run a business. It drops by 80% eight weeks, and you live to tell about it. Airbnb debuted on Wall Street, and the upstart is now worth more than several major American hotel chains combined. I want people, if we are successful many years from now, to look back on this year as the defining year where we did our very best to take care of all of our stakeholders, no matter how hard the decisions were, and that we kind of persevered, we got through it. Getting through it and maybe getting to the other side. I think we often yearn something when it's taken away from us. Travel, for many, is taken away from them right now. Maybe something even deeper that's taken away is the sense of connection. It's Friday, December 11th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Today, a change of plans, 2020's motto. A lot of things have changed this year, how and where we work, how and where we live. I'm currently speaking to you from my high-end studio, also known as my closet. Today, we are highlighting one of the many companies impacted in a surprising way by the coronavirus, Airbnb, which allows users to book short-term rentals and experiences while traveling. My name is Soraya. My name is Fabi. We've been Airbnb hosts since 2011. Airbnb planned to go public earlier this year before the pandemic hit and stay-at-home orders made people cancel vacations. But something of a dramatic twist here, with the travel sector absolutely battered in this country, Airbnb managed to hit a sweet spot. Homes rather than hotels. Longer-term rentals. Locations that offered renters places to work and learn at a distance became really popular. Airbnb opened as a publicly listed company Thursday at $146 a share, more than doubling the $68 per share price set for its IPO just the day before. That opening price gave Airbnb a market value of nearly $87 billion and gives Airbnb a market cap bigger than Marriott, Hilton, Intercontinental Hotels, Combined, on the eve of this new chapter, Airbnb's CEO and co-founder spoke to Andrew Ross Sorkin. Hey, Brian, can you hear me? I can hear you. You probably can't see me. I see like a magazine photo of you. It looks like a cover of GQ or something. I'll take what I can get. Brian Chesky joined via Zoom from the very first Airbnb. Today you're at Rouse Street. This is not your home yeah. anymore. Yeah, so I'm doing this at Rouse Street. I live down the street. This is the apartment we started it in. Yeah, got to represent. Here's Andrew. Brian Chesky, CEO of Airbnb, uh, on the biggest moment uh, of this company's life thus far, the IPO of Airbnb taking place. Uh, Brian, you're coming to us uh, from Rouse Street, where you founded the company 13 years ago. So before we even get into it, what's it feel like? Oh, man. I mean, I remember October 2007 uh, arriving uh, in this apartment from Los Angeles 
via Honda Civic, totally broke. And my roommate, Joe, and I were trying to figure out how to pay rent. And so we ended up actually inflating a few air mattresses, and we turned this apartment into an air bed and breakfast. If 13 years later you would tell me that you know, we'd be you know, on the even IPO, I would have totally told you we were crazy. So, but just go back for a second. Even then, or maybe even two or three years out, did you have any anticipation that you'd be where you are today in terms of how large the company is? I mean, uh, no, Andrew. I remember when we started Airbnb, we felt like we were onto something. And I remember saying, you know, one day this is going to be huge. Thousands of people are going to use Airbnb. So I thought we always thought it was going to be big. It's just, you know, when you're 26 and, you know, my, my, my parents are social workers, like my sense of scale, I couldn't tell the difference between a thousand and a million and a hundred million people. So I think it gradually began to dawn on us that this would get bigger probably around like 2011, 2012, but it was still, it was, it was definitely a long road. So there's so many chapters to the life of Airbnb and challenges along the way, but let's just jump to this last chapter, uh, which is the pandemic, because this was not obviously uh, on in any playbook. This was not on anybody's radar. Um, I remember talking to you about a year ago when you planned to go public, and I don't think this was anything you were contemplating. So just walk us through how this has changed you and how this has changed the company. Well, I'm feel like I'm now 39 going on 59 because I feel like the last, you know, eight months, we must have made a decade or two worth of decisions. You know, probably like a lot of people, I kind of came into 2020 thinking my life would go a certain way. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, March happens and I feel like I'm, you know, the captain of a ship and all of a sudden a torpedo hit the side of the ship. And then suddenly our business drops by 80% in eight weeks and um, it's, it's not typical to run a business. It drops by 80% eight weeks and you live to tell about it. We had to basically rebuild almost the entire everything about the company from the ground up. But, you know, I think that a crisis, um, it kind of reveals a lot. You can learn a lot about somebody in a crisis. I think I learned a lot about myself in a crisis. And, you know, we just got incredibly focused. And I think, I think that the crisis did is it instilled this sense of resolve and this sense of um, focus about like why we're even doing this in the first place. And it was the same reason we did it when we started. And everything else, all the other distractions, they kind of fall by the wayside. And only like what is most important is kind of left in a moment of crisis, you know. And that's kind of what we end up focusing on. So tell me what you think this looks like, what this business looks like today, but also what it looks like on the other side of what we all hope is this vaccine coming this spring, summer of 2021. Yeah, I mean, I think what this crisis did is it got me really focused once again on the thing that makes this company so special, which are our hosts. We have 4 million hosts, and they're at the center of Airbnb, and they offer homes and experiences. And when the crisis happened, I, 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 people really stopped traveling. And I didn't really know, I, I was expecting this business would take a long time to recover. But this past summer, something happened that surprised us. Uh, people found new ways to use Airbnb. You know, we found people who were working from home and they were just really like stirred up in the house and they decided I'm going to get another home and work from an Airbnb in another house. College kids can go back on campus. They didn't want to move back with mom and dad. So they ended up staying in Airbnbs together. Other people wanted to visit their family. They didn't want to live with their family. And I think what happened is, I think we often yearn something when it's taken away from us. 
travel for many is taken away from them right now. Uh, maybe something even deeper that's taken away is the sense of connection. The idea that we can spend time with the people that we care about and meet other people. And so in that way, I think there was a yearning for this, for what we offer. And in that kind of sense, I think this company was new again for many people and millions of people discovered this company. Now, what does it look like in the future? Well, I don't know for sure. I think anyone that was in the business of predicting the future about a year ago has been humbled by this past year. So I certainly can't predict the future. But I will say is that I do think once vaccinations are here, I think, you know, the Roaring 20s came after the Spanish flu. There will be another Roaring 20s. And I think that people are going to desire to travel again, maybe more than ever. And I think they're going to desire uh, like an authentic way to travel where they can connect with people they care about. Let me ask you a question about that, because one of the one of the things that people are predicting is that there's going to be uh, a lot less business travel, which means that hotels in big cities are not going to be filled the way they used to. And I wonder how you think about your business in particular in big cities, uh, because you often had success because they were pricing below effectively where hotels were. If hotels are going to have to price at a lower price point, what does that do to your franchise? Well, Andrew, the first thing I would say is you brought up a very good point. Um, The hotel industry has been very much centered around business travel. There is going to be no doubt a shift overall in travel from business to leisure. Every one of us is going to adapt. Um, so that's the first thing. I think business travel is going to go down. I also think mass tourism, people waiting in line with selfie sticks to get their photos in front of landmarks and going on double-decker buses and flooding tourist districts, that's probably also going to be smaller in the future. That being said, I think people are going to desire to travel. They're going to want to go to cities. I think you're going to find new reasons to go to cities. Now, if hotels price their rooms lower, I'm sure our hosts will adapt as well. I think our community is inherently resilient, and most of our hosts never were hosting before Airbnb. So mostly whatever they charge per night is pretty much incremental income for them. Talk to us about uh, the path to profitability. This is a company that has achieved quarterly profitability in 2018 and 19, but hasn't done it on an annualized basis yet. Well, we were actually, you know, we were, uh, as you saw on the S1 EBITDA positive in uh, 2018 on an adjusted EBITDA basis. Um, you know, we, we I, I think that the way to think about it is we think this model has really good long-term inherent margins built into it. Now, the thing about Airbnb is we had to do a lot of hard work to get this company going. We had to design this system of trust. We had to build our own payment system. We had to invest in trust and safety to be able to make sure that two strangers could live together. We had to be able to localize our product in 200 countries and regions all over the world. We had to invest in building a brand that's known as a noun and a verb all over the world. So we had to build a lot of difficult things. We made a lot of investments. I do think, as you see in 2019, we are over an investment hump of sorts. And I'm feeling really good about what the nature of the profitability for this company is on an ongoing basis. Because at the end of the day, this is a primarily capital light business. It's a, re- it's a community. Communities are extremely scalable, but you do have to invest in them if you want to build a truly global brand of hundreds of millions of people. And that's right. what we've really done. So for the investor class out there that's thinking, should we be buying into this IPO? One of the questions they invariably ask is, who's the comp? What's the, what's the comparable company to think about? And of course, there are the bookings.com and the Expedias, and then there are the hotel companies. On the other side, where do you think you fit in that mix or do you fit in a different mix? 
we fit in a different mix. I mean, it is very hard to give a comp. We basically said we created a new category of travel, and so therefore we're in a category of one. I mean, the OTAs, Booking.com, Expedia, they're really distribution channels, mostly for hotel rooms that existed before them. They don't do all the services and all the tools that we do, so we don't think that's the best comp for us. Um, and obviously, we're not a hotel. That's pretty obvious as well. So we really do think we're a, a totally different category, and investors are going to have to probably value us you know, just by looking at the fundamentals of the business. Can we, let's talk a little bit, if we could, for a moment about uh, the various uh, classes of shares in terms of governance and how you've thought about that. Yeah, well, you know, my co-founders and I um, – you know, we are um, we want to build a company for the long term. And, you know, I think everyone says that we we you know, when you're a founder, you want to build a company that's going to be around longer than you. And we wanted to make sure that we had some insulation from pressures that would, you know, I think make us make compromises on a short term basis. So we do have a dual class of stock um, to allow us, I think, to make really long term decisions. And I think, you know, investors can decide if that's something they want to buy into. Uh, you're setting aside 9.2 million shares uh, as part of what's called a host endowment. Can you talk about yeah. what, what that is and how you see that? You know, our, uh, you know, our hosts are so important to Airbnb, and I think you know, they really helped us build this company. And we wanted to make sure that we could create a way to continue to invest in our hosts for as long as Airbnb exists. And so we did. We took over 9 million shares um, of company stock, and we transferred it into an entity, which was a host endowment. And we then created a host advisory board. It's a dozen, it's, it's about 16 hosts that represent hosts all over the world. And they're going to advise us on how to invest that endowment in the host community. But we're going to be investing over the long term in this community. And I hope that this endowment continues to grow in value as Airbnb grows in value. I also am taking $100 million of my own stock and I'm going to be putting it into the endowment as well. And then I just wanted to ask you about the business in China, because it's, a, it's an opportunity that you've clearly identified. And yet we're also at a time where the relationship between the U.S. and China is as complicated. Um, and I put that polite. That's probably the politest way to put it as it's ever been. And how do you see that affecting the business long term? Well, you know, the, we um, we're not the first hospitality company to operate in China. Hilton and Marriott have massive presences in this country. And, you know, where we found our sweet spot is really the cross-border business. Actually, mainly how we're relevant is Chinese travelers, mostly millennials, mostly people, I'd say under 35, that want to travel around the world, leave China, and have, a, have an authentic travel experience. And so that's the primary way that we exist. That's where most of our revenue, most of our Chinese profits come from, our Chinese travelers that want to travel and experience the world. And we just want to make sure that people in all countries of the world with Internet access ideally um, you know, can have an experience with Airbnb around the world. When you think about risks to the business, what's at the top of your list? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we had quite a few risk factors. So one could read all those risk factors. But I think, um, the, I think the biggest risk to our business, and I kind of learned this through the crisis, is losing focus. You know, I studied um, entrepreneurs before me, some of the great entrepreneurs. You know, when we lost 80% of our business in eight weeks, I turned to entrepreneurs who had, you know, also been in dark times. I looked at Steve Jobs when he came back to Apple 
And that company was in a very, very dark place. And the first thing Steve Jobs did is he said, we have to get focused. He shuttered the majority of the product line. He went from a, a business unit structure to a functional organization. And, you know, they focused their way out of that crisis. And I took inspiration from that. And I said, we're going to focus our way out of this crisis. And so we took a lot of our investments. We put them on hold. We said, what's the part of our business that is most special, most different? It was the thing we started, our hosts, who offer homes and experiences. We also shuttered our divisional structure, went to a functional organization. And I think that focus doesn't just save money and make a company more efficient. It actually leads to a lot of growth. And so I have learned this lesson, starting really focused. Then, you know, raising billions of dollars, pursuing lots of investments. This has been an opportunity for us to get a lot more focus. And I don't want to ever lose that focus again. So it doesn't mean we won't do new things. We're just not going to do them all at once. And we're going to be really focused. How should investors, though, think about the regulatory risks, meaning cities that decide that you can't operate there for whatever reason, and the additional costs that may come over time uh, that maybe regulators will put on you or maybe the market will put on you when it comes to trying to prevent house parties or, or other types of events that you wouldn't want to happen? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, Andrew. And, you know, we are already in a relationship with hundreds of cities. You know, we've collected and remitted over $2 billion of transient occupancy tax or hotel occupancy tax. So we already have agreements with almost every city in the world. And, um, you know, and I think the pandemic in this new world, I think our relationship with cities is going to continue to evolve because one of the things we're hearing from cities is that, you know, their constituents, their voters certainly are turning uh, for ways to earn income. We think hosting is a way that will be very, very valuable for them. And cities are, I think, you know, in need of economic activity. I think we can be a solution to a problem they're now seeing. But I would want any city to know that ultimately we want to be wanted there and we want to strengthen the communities that we serve. I think over our history, we sometimes were a little slow in our history. I think a lot of Internet companies were to acknowledge the full extent of their responsibility. But we've tried to be proactive over the last few years, and I hope our actions like instituting a party ban, you know, not allowing people under the age of 25 to book uh, Airbnb in their own city last minute, you know, things like that. I hope, hope cities are seeing that we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to be proactive and we want them to know that we want them to reach out to us when they have concerns. We want to be good actors. You built a, a business in large part on trust, on creating trust yeah. among people that most of the time don't even know each other. Yeah. And one of the things I'm curious about is how concerned you are about how much distrust there appears to be, at least in the United States, if not across the globe. And you're seeing it manifest itself in politics. You're seeing it manifest itself on social media in so many places. And whether you think that's going to manifest itself in real life and ultimately in businesses like yours that depend on trust. Andrew, that's, a, that's such a good question. I'm very concerned. I mean, Right now, I think one of the major, you know, we, we talk a lot about big problems in the world. Like if you went to Davos a year ago, the big topic would have been global warming. There's another big problem happening in the world. I think it's a problem of uh, human disconnection. And I think we're feeling it right now, whether people are feeling very lonely and isolated. And I think this is causing a huge amount of mental health crisis problems or others that are divided and distrustful and distrust can brew kind of hate and other things as well. And I am very, very concerned. You know, um, I, I feel like how is it possible that we're more digitally connected than we've ever been 
And yet it sometimes seems that we're growing more isolated and more disconnected. So, you know, we're here. We're not going to solve that problem. But if we can make a very small dent on that problem you know, by helping, you know, in a peak night last year, 2 million people from cultures and countries that never lived together come together by walking in someone else's shoes. The best thing I know to bridge cultures is to have one person walk in another person's shoes. And when they do that, I think they're going to learn two really basic ideas. They're going to realize that we humans are fundamentally good and we are 99% the same. And I think we like to spend a lot of time talking about the 1% of humanity or less that cause a lot of trouble. And we like to focus on all of our differences. But, you know, having traveled the world and having had hundreds of millions of people live on Airbnb together, this concept would have statistically failed if people weren't good statistically and they weren't inherently mostly the same deep down. This idea would never have worked. We just had it to like build some basic features to shine a light and help people basically build a reputational system. But I am very concerned about where the world's going, and I hope we can help maybe make a very small dent in it. But of course, this is going to be the work of so many more people, and we're just going to try to do our small part. Um, you're going public on the NASDAQ uh, just last week. Adina Friedman, uh, the CEO of the NASDAQ, uh, came out with a new proposal to require all NASDAQ-listed companies uh, to have at least one minority and one female on the board, you would qualify uh, from the very beginning. But I'm curious what you thought of that decision and, and whether you would talk to the NASDAQ about that. I mean, I was aware of that, and I think it's a great proposal. Um, you know, I think that, you know, you know, change has to start somewhere, and a lot of change happens through kind of activism and regular people rising up. But, I mean, change really has to also start from the top. It has to start with people in power. And I do think there's a new generation of business leaders that are acknowledging, mostly maybe because many of our customers are young, they care about the kind of companies that make the products that they consume. And I think the best business decision is in the future for society to want you exist. And so basically that means we're all in the business of serving multiple stakeholders. We serve shareholders but we also have to serve society. We have to serve our partners, our employees, our customers. And frankly, that's the best thing for shareholders long-term is for people to be rooting for us and feeling like when we win, everyone wins. And so I do think that's right. kind of where this is all going and whether it's diversity, inclusion, um, or you know, environmental impact or some other issue, we're gonna just have to be more mindful of so many more issues in business. When you thought about uh, this, this IPO, I, I know for a very long time you wanted to stay private. Um, did you consider, I mean, we're now into this, what we call a SPAC frenzy. And I know that there was a point at which Bill Ackman uh, w wanted to participate in a SPAC. I'm sure others called you as well. Um, how did you think about that? I mean, I have a lot of respect for a lot of the people that reached out to us. And it was very humbling to see that, um, you know, we, we had a lot of interest for a lot of different proposals. You know, I think that like fairly early on, you know, actually earlier on, we had contemplated a direct listing, but, um, you know, I think an IPO just became the very obvious path for us because, you know, ultimately I think Airbnb is a kind of different kind of company. It's not like other companies. And so we wanted to just have the opportunity to tell our story and what makes Airbnb Airbnb to as many people as possible. And so I think an IPO is a very good way to be able to tell the story to the most number of people. So when they consider buying stock, they know what they're buying. I think that was very important. Okay, so if we have this conversation a year from now 
And let's also then have this conversation five years from now. How are you going to define success both times? I think that in either timeline, I would like people to look back on 2020 as the most defining year in our company. You know, I remember, you know, the world went uh, sheltered in place in mid-March. And within, you know, a month or two, our business had dropped more than 80%. And there were news articles asking, will Airbnb exist in the future? And is this the end of Airbnb? And of course, it wasn't the end of Airbnb. But in fact, I do think that this crisis, as much suffering has happened in the world, has made us a better and more focused company. And I want people, if we are successful many years from now, to look back on this year as the defining year where we did our very best to take care of all of our stakeholders, no matter how hard the decisions were, and that we kind of persevered, we got through it, and that was the turning point. That year, 2020, was a turning point where the beginning of the next chapter of Airbnb started. Brian Chesky, Airbnb, we wish you lots of luck with it, and uh, we hope uh, that you come back and we can uh, talk about your progress. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you. You're like the voice of God, like surrounding this room. I don't know where it's coming from. I just hear you. Next, putting Airbnb's strong debut into context. An IPO veteran he worked on Salesforce and Pandora, Steve Cakebread, discusses what's become a record year for new listings, but he says it's time to get to work. It's heads down, and it's the next 10 years that makes the real value of the company, quite frankly, going forward. Squawk Pod. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. We are ending this week seeing double. Two major IPOs, double in value, right out of the gate. Joe Kernan and Becky Quick took on the surprisingly sizzling year for IPOs. Believe it or not, and uh, no one could have predicted this back in March, but 2020 been a monster year for new offerings. Palantir has gained 273% since going public. Snowflake up 211%, Airbnb more than doubling in its debut yesterday, and DoorDash up more than 80%. Uh, Leslie Picker joins us uh, with more on the year's wild IPO market. I'm gratified and happy about it. Uh, just, just <laughs> from, I am in yeah. a year like this. Uh, you know, I know there's a lot yeah, of really sad things, but you know, good, good, it's good, Leslie. There's a lot of wealth being created as well. And you're right, Joe, nobody would have seen this coming back in March or April. And let's first of all start by saying this type of activity, this type of aftermarket performance, it's not normal. It's actually rare to see IPOs double in their debuts. Last year, there were three in 2018, 2017, and 2016. Only one company doubled in each of those years. This year, 
There have been 19 companies that have seen gains of at least 100% on day one, including two just this week alone with C3.AI and Airbnb. That is the most since, well, you guessed it, 2000. But back then, the deal sizes were much smaller. Yesterday, Airbnb and its founders sold $3.5 billion worth of stock, and it's still more than doubled on their first day of trading. So what's going on here? Well, there are a few dynamics at play that are specific to 2020. For one, retail interest. DoorDash was trending on Twitter almost all day on Wednesday. Yesterday, Airbnb was the most active stock traded on the Fidelity platform. And I'm told by sources close to both of these deals that uh, retail participated heavily in their debuts. Additionally, Timing is everything. These deals are coming with just a few weeks left in the year. And among the buy side, once there's conviction that these IPOs, quote, would work, that's the language that they tend to use, price sensitivity really went out the window as these day one pops helped them lock in alpha for 2020, guys. Hey, Leslie, thank you very much. All right, let's talk a little bit more about this. Airbnb doubling in its debut session yesterday. DoorDash up 80% the day before. So let's bring in two industry veterans on what could be next for these companies. Steve Cakebread is former CFO at Salesforce, Yext, and Pandora when those companies went through their IPOs. His new book is called The IPO Playbook, an insider's guide on taking your company public. It came out yesterday, very well-timed. Also joining us this morning is Chip Conley, a former Airbnb head of global hospitality and strategy. But um, Steve, I want to start with you this morning. This idea that when the stock jumps so much, what would you be doing if you were the CFO at that company at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, everything that's old is new now. Everybody thought IPOs were going away. And guess what? They come roaring back. Um, I honestly, like Joe and others, don't believe that that one day pop is that meaningful. It's about creating value over a longer term. And if I was a CEO or CFO, I would be sitting down and looking at the follow-on for the company to get more money in with lower dilution uh, at that opportunity. So yeah, one day pops don't mean anything. Long-term value is the most important. But if you were trying to figure out how to take advantage of that, would you be looking at issuing more shares right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what you do. You know, you've got lockups, but the I would be looking at a follow-on offering very quickly with under the constraints that the bankers put on us. But yes, absolutely. That's how you capture that incremental value uh, mm -hmm. as soon as you can under your constraints. Hey, Chip, you own a large number of shares of Airbnb. What, what did you think of how things went off yesterday? <laughs> you know, I, it, I've, I've been involved with the company for eight years now. I've been the in-house mentor to Brian as the head of global hospitality and strategy. So Eight years of toil and 12 years for the founders of toil. Uh, it, it was a, a, a true validation. But you can't, as, as uh, Steve said, you can't, you can't judge uh, a stock or a company based upon a day's performance in the stock market. Um, and what we have to do is just continue it going and, you know, create a legacy-based company that is focused on the long term. I would say watching that yesterday, particularly after eight years of toil, it would be understandable if you wanted to cash in on some of that right now, make sure that, you know, you have something to show for that. Is that your inclination or are you planning to hold those shares? You know, the, the thing that's interesting is that uh, Airbnb, uh, testament to Brian's leadership, um, gave the employees the ability to actually sell some of their shares in the last couple of days or yesterday. Um, so that's unusual. Usually you're locked up six months. But uh, Airbnb employees and former employees were able to sell 15, up to 15% of their shares. 
I know many are. I have not sold up to 15%. I've sold some percentage, but not, I, I still am pretty bullish about the company. Um, but I, you know, to, the fact that employees could actually sell yesterday and the price did as well as it did says there's a lot of pent-up demand for Airbnb stock. Chip, what does it mean for the company at this point? How do you do things differently? I, I know we, we heard from Brian Chesky about how, look, maybe in the past they had talked about going too many different directions, and he's going to be very much about focus. That's one thing that the pandemic taught him. Yeah, it's, it's been a fascinating journey to be by his side for the last eight years and, and four years full-time and now four years as an advisor because I think focus is really a, a, one of the things he learned from studying Steve Jobs. and. Uh, Steve was said over and over again, you know, it's what's most important is what you say no to. So I think that, you know, the thing that's true about Airbnb is it's kind of a, a very iconic brand uh, at a very early stage in its career, in its history. Um, 91% of Airbnb's uh, business uh, comes from uh, direct or organic uh, search, not from paid search. So I think that you know Airbnb should be looking at, and I, this is just my opinion. Um, how do you actually grow beyond just being a travel company? How could we? How the, could the company be almost like a lifestyle curator, uh, just like Netflix helps you find your movie, uh, Amazon helps you find what to buy, Spotify helps you find what to listen to. Airbnb should personalize in such a way that it helps you to determine what to do, not just where to where to travel to. Hey, Steve, as somebody who has been through this many times over, the IPO, what happens next, what would you be advising these companies? You know, it's, it's, it's so much focus put into this IPO. Now you turn around and do what, particularly if you have IPOs that have done that well. I mean, it's probably easy to get caught up in, in the bubble and the, the hype around all of that and the excitement about it. But what would you be advising these management teams to do at this point? Right. That's a great question. First off, I'd go celebrate one day great opportunity, close the door and move on. But it is about the long run and you have to run a business here. And this is the new door that opens when you go public is having that business be sustainable long-term, contribute to the community, contribute to the employees. So it's heads down and it's the next 10 years that makes the real value of the company, quite frankly, going forward. So it's get your game plan together, as Chip said, get some focus, but look at your platform expansion and just go. Steve and Chip, I want to thank you for your time. Steve, uh, congratulations on the new book. And Chip, congratulations you. to you on, on a path after a lot of work. Thank you. It's good to see you. Thanks. Thanks, Becky. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to traveltexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time consuming and difficult. That's where one travel comes in with one travel. You'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. 
That's Squawk Pod for this Friday. Thanks for listening today, all week, whenever you do. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Share Squawk Pod with a friend. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, would you be so kind to leave us a rating or write a review? All that helps new listeners find Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.